Welcome to the air war in Europe. My grandfather flew his third mission on July 30, 1944. His crew had had four days off after their second mission, and on the 28th, while others of the 464th Bomb Group attacked Ploesti, my granddad, his pilot, co-pilot, and navigator took a group of men going on pass to Rome. In his diary, he talks about the beauty of the city from the air, the Tiber River, Vatican City, the ruins of the Colosseum. They were not able to go sightseeing because there was a group of men coming off pass waiting for them at the airfield. But on their way back, they flew over Naples and were treated to a look into the crater of Mount Vesuvius. On the 30th, they bombed the Duna Aircraft Factory near Budapest, Hungary. From the Diary of Radio Operator, Sergeant Jerome Laurie. Considering our last raid, this one could be called a milk run. It was the first time we didn't get too close to the flak. We only got one hole in our vertical stabilizer. Our group didn't lose any ships. This was the first raid we ever saw any enemy fighters. They were pretty well taken care of by our escorts of P-38s and P-51s. One ME-109 came in out of the sun. When I saw him, he wasn't more than 200 feet out. If it weren't for the P-38s on his tail, he would have surely got a damn good shot at us. You really have to keep your eyes open. We had one pretty close call today. One of our B-24s came right above us at the target. It wasn't bad. The only thing was he still had his bombs. We surely were sweating as we thought they were going to come down on us. They only came within 15 feet, though. I could practically read the serial numbers on them. It was pretty close, but then again, a miss is as good as a mile. Nose Gunner Staff Sergeant George Kroll wrote, After a four-day rest, we took off for Budapest, Hungary this morning. We bombed the Duna Aircraft Factory, ran into a few ME-109s. They didn't bother us thanks to the P-38s and P-51 escorts. They chased the louses all over the sky. Many of the enemy planes went down in flames. Some of ours did also. The Germans sent up moderate but inaccurate flak. My grandfather remembered the mission to Duna. On 30 July, we went on our third sortie. We were briefed as usual, and we were told our target was the Duna Aircraft Factory, located near Budapest, Hungary. We took off at 0730 and arrived at the target at 1110. The flak was pretty rugged, and it was heavy, moderate, and accurate. Today I saw my first enemy fighter. It was an ME-109. However, the P-51s and P-38s were keeping them plenty busy. More of them attacked the formation. On the way home, we saw three flak areas way off, nowhere near us. We flew Yellow Yoke, the ship we flew overseas. The only damage was a flak hole in the vertical stabilizer. We landed at 1405. All in all, it wasn't too bad of a mission. I find the difference in the reports of flak between my granddad and the radio operator interesting, but not surprising. Lori's is the only one of the three accounts to mention nearly being bombed out of the sky by another B-24, and I think it comes down to what each of them saw close up. Watching friendly bombs fall 15 feet from your plane is probably radically different than being told about it. A note about flak. You might have noticed the way it's being described in the diaries. Heavy or light, moderate or intense.
accurate or inaccurate. Heavy and light are a description of the size of the shells being shot at you. The Germans employed a variety of anti-aircraft artillery, ranging from 20 and 50 millimeter light to 88 and 128 millimeter heavy. Moderate and intense denote how many guns and how much they are shooting. Accurate and inaccurate are self-explanatory. My granddad mentions that the crew was flying the plane they brought from the States. He calls it Yellow Yoke. Though it was a common practice throughout the Army Air Forces, my granddad's crew never named the plane they brought overseas and flew most of their missions in. The name Yellow Yoke was derived from the identification markings on the plane. With hundreds of aircraft in the sky at once, taking off from airfields sometimes quite close together, squadrons, groups, and wings, an organizational structure hierarchically between groups and air forces, needed an easy way to find each other and form up. Early on, it was determined that boldly colored tail markings, often repeated on upper and lower wing surfaces, were necessary for the job. The result was a panoply of marking schemes that brings images of the shields of medieval knights to mind. During the time my grandfather flew his missions, the 464th Bomb Group painted the vertical stabilizers, the tails of the planes, the B-24 had two, according to a scheme common to the 55th Bomb Wing, which the 464th was part of. The top half was painted yellow, the bottom half black, with a black square centered in the yellow half and a shape in yellow unique to each group in the black half. A circle for the 460th, a vertical bar for the 464th, a horizontal bar for the 465th, and an X for the 485th. In the 464th bomb group, each squadron had an identifying color, red for the 776th, yellow for the 777th, white for the 778th, and black for the 779th. Each plane in the squadron had an identifying letter, painted in the squadron color on the fuselage just aft of the waist window. My grandfather's plane was Y, painted in yellow for the 777 squadron on a black square, thus yellow yoke. By the beginning of November 1942, the 8th Air Force had five bomb groups operational with 296 aircraft, 234 B-17s, and 62 B-24s. These would be joined by another four bomb groups by month's end. Through August, September, and October, the 8th had dropped 684 tons of bombs in 581 sorties, of which 318, or a hair under 55%, were considered effective. The air crews had come to England with no real idea what to expect. They had been trained by instructors who had no idea either. The early months of the air war and their effects on the bomber crews are well summed up by Lieutenant John Regan, a B-17 pilot with the 306th Bomb Group. Quote, We had not been told about flak and German fighters because the people with us hadn't any experience in combat. After I finished my tour and rotated home, I directed flying operations at a B-17 school to train replacement crews for combat. 
These people did not understand how fortunate they were that they had people teaching them flying who could explain what combat was like and what could be expected of them when they got to England. We found that if a crew could get through the first five missions, their chances of survival were almost double. Those first missions, you were looking around, not sure what to do, nobody telling you what to expect. It was difficult to absorb what was going on. We lost a lot of people because they didn't know instinctively what moves to make, what to do, and how to follow. The first mission of our group was against a factory in the city of Lille, France. Not a very deep penetration, but one that required us to be in formation. I had been a football player in high school and college, and the feeling was the same. I was really excited. This is what I had trained for. I was over here to fly combat. Boy, I was young, eager, and ready to go. When we crossed the coast, we didn't have fighter escort. We climbed to altitude, went toward our target, and we started getting attacked by fighters, and the ground anti-aircraft was shooting at us. I thought, my God, these people are serious. From that point on, combat was never thrilling to me. It was a job that had to be done, and a job that turned out to be extremely tough. I imagine the rest of my crew felt very much like I did. After we departed the target, I lost my number two engine, which suffered some minor damage from flak. We had to drop back from the formation and were attacked by about 20 to 25 yellow-nosed ME-109s, Goering's own airplanes. Fortunately for me at the time, the Germans didn't know how to attack the B-17, which was still an airplane with which they were not familiar. They stood out, forming an echelon on my left side, and they would peel off and try to attack us from that side. They just were not successful. When they did this, I would pull up so I would get the prop wash from the airplanes that were much farther ahead of me, and these people would have to fly through it. I would then go from one side to another to keep them from attacking us well. On these early missions, the Luftwaffe had seemed reticent to attack the bombers, and many mistakenly assumed they were frightened by the fortress's bristling guns. This was not the case. They had been watching the bombers, studying their procedures, looking for patterns, with an eye out for weakness. Charles Travenek was the radio operator and waste gunner on a 97th Group B-17. Midway over the water, all hell broke loose. Goering's Abbeville kids were waiting for us with 200-plus Luftwaffe fighter planes, ME-109s and FW-190s, and they stayed with us, constantly firing away until our planes were crippled while fighting our way through direct hits over the target. Three of our engines were shot out as we dropped our bomb load over Milt. The fourth engine was feathered. Our vertical stabilizer was shot out, as was the oxygen and intercom. Our plane began making spasmodic drops of 500 feet to 1,000 feet in altitude. We hit the ceiling with each sudden drop, along with all the unsecured equipment. Then we rapidly dropped with the flying objects to the plane's rubber walkway. Travenick's plane was observed gliding down with three fighters in hot pursuit while four parachutes blossomed near the target area. When the plane crashed, the right wing tore off and the ball turret smashed through the tail on the impact. Travenick continues, Bill Warren, the ball turret gunner, was the only crew member not seriously hurt, just a gash on his head. 
He dragged Bill Peltier, the tail gunner, away from the plane to safety, but was unable to get Dunbar, Matson, or me out because we were wrapped up in the metal of the Bombay tanks in the radio room. Warren then went to the nose of the plane, looking for injured officers. When he found none, Warren realized they must have bailed out. Instead, he found Paul Drain, the bombardier, trapped in the cockpit with a broken leg. He got Drain out and over by Peltier. Matson, Dunbar, and I managed to extricate ourselves from the twisted wreckage and crawl to safety should this plane explode. According to the tail gunner Peltier, no bailout alarm was sounded, whether due to pilot failure or the electrical system being damaged by shell fire is open to debate. Anyway, the four of them jumped, pilot, co-pilot, navigator, and the engineer. Six of us were left behind, four gunners, bombardier, and radio operator. The plane was in a steep glide, pretty close to the ground, when the bombardier managed to straighten it out a little. We crash-landed in a wheat field. I've never explained the miracle of how all six of us survived that crash. Peltier, Travenek, and the others were captured by the Germans shortly after the crash. In the three months it had been operational, the 8th Air Force had lost 12 planes, 10 to enemy action and 2 to other causes. Assuming the worst, all hands lost or captured, which was almost certainly not the case, the cost of those 684 tons of bombs dropped on Axis targets was 120 men. Over the same period, gunners and fighter pilots were credited with 62 confirmed enemy fighters shot down. These figures were proven, by post-war analysis of Luftwaffe records, to be greatly exaggerated. As the Luftwaffe developed its tactics and began to attack the bombers in earnest, especially on longer missions where Allied escort fighters didn't have the fuel range to cover the bombers all the way, it's not hard to imagine that the young, frightened gunners on bombers, firing split-second bursts at fighters flashing through the formation, would make claims that might not be entirely justified. This was exacerbated by the German tactic of making head-on attacks on the bombers, then rolling away into a dive, and the fact that multiple gunners on different B-17s or B-24s were often firing at the same fighter. When the German dove away, it's understandable that American gunners, likely terrified and angry, would automatically assume they had just struck a deadly blow. Even though claimed kills far outnumbered those credited, as Army Air Force intelligence officers understood the propensity for false claims, and they had no illusions that inflating the kill numbers meant the enemy was any closer to defeat, regardless of the morale boost provided. The actual number of German fighters shot down by bomber gunners was many times fewer than the number credited. At this point in the war, the two American heavy bombers in use, the B-17E and F models and the B-24D model, lacked heavy, forward-facing armament. They had a single 50 caliber gun with limited mobility or light 30 caliber machine guns with half the effective range and many times less hitting power than the 50 caliber guns in the other positions on the bombers. German fighter pilots quickly recognized this weakness and adopted the head-on attack against single bombers, at first in ones and twos, and later in groups of four, eight, and more often going after those flying loosely in formation or straggling behind. 
Early on, airmen arrived in England with little to no training in aerial gunnery. Lieutenant Colonel Curtis LeMay, who later ran the Air Force's Strategic Air Command during the Cold War, was the commander of the 305th Bomb Group when it became operational in late November 1942. In a letter to his mentor, General Robert Olds, LeMay noted, There is a lot of difference between bombing an undefended target and running through a barrage of six-inch shell fire while a swarm of pursuits are working on you. On our arrival here, our gunners were very poorly trained. Most of them had not received enough shooting instruction, especially at altitude, to even familiarize themselves with their equipment. Due to weather and missions, the only practice we have had so far is shooting at FW-190s and ME-109s. LeMay recognized that self-protection depended on the bombers flying proper formation. He developed the Group Combat Box, based around three squadrons of six to nine aircraft, flying very close in a staggered formation. The lead squadron was flanked on each side by the other two, one a thousand feet above and the other a thousand feet below. Properly flown, this formation could bring as many as 250 caliber machine guns to bear on an enemy fighter. Besides poor gunnery, the 8th Air Force had not developed standard formation for bombing. Many groups took evasive action over the target when confronted with flak or fighters, making their Norden bomb sites and the strategy of precision bombing it was meant to enable essentially useless. Though the crews thought they were really walloping the Germans, aerial reconnaissance photos of bomb damage revealed that the results were actually quite poor. Using an old artillery manual and correcting for the capabilities of the German 88mm flat gun, LeMay calculated that a German gun would have to fire 372 rounds to guarantee a single hit on a B-17. His pilots were skeptical when he ordered them to fly straight and level, taking no evasive action on the bomb run when the 305th flew its first mission. But to prove the point, he flew the lead plane, and the bomb damage photos showed that the 305th had put twice the number of bombs within the target area as any other group on any previous mission, without loss. In spite of the seeming efficacy of his tactics, it would take months for the innovations LeMay pioneered to become standard operating procedure in the rest of the Army Air Forces. In 